0: Hi,
1: I'm Janan marashti in Amsterdam. And I'm Laura Empana in
0: Vienna. And this is Not Loud Enough. A podcast that delivers authentic conversations about actions we take to build a more inclusive and empowering world.
1: Brought to you by two very good friends and their guests across various industries. <laughs>
0: Hi, Janan. How are you? So happy to get together for a new Not Loud Enough episode.
1: Yeah, Laura, it's the first of one of the year. Very, very happy to connect again through our podcast. Well, I'm doing good as far as good, we can say good in these times of pandemic where everything is more difficult than usual. But uh, I'm doing okay and I'm very happy that today we are going to talk about very interesting topics around the crafts industry with two fantastic guests, and uh, learn about the current state of the crafts industry, find out why it is important to preserve traditional crafts, and what our guests are working on to help uh, this industry further develop. So I'm very, very excited.
0: It is an important topic, and I think it touches everyone because uh, at the core, it's about the relationship we have with objects. They are meaning in our life, uh, the way we consume them and how we dispose of them. And besides the topics you just mentioned, Janan, um, today we will also dive into the inclusion and empowerment aspects of, of this industry and our guests will share concrete actions uh, we can take in this sense. And I look forward to all that. We have so many things to discuss. Um, I'm happy to welcome uh, Alina Sherban. She has been living in Vienna since uh, 2004, um, enjoying the multicultural vibes of uh, the urban space, being involved in theater and performance projects, Uh, participating in the cultural scene of the city and getting inspiration for uh, her work in political equality and participation. Uh, Alina uh, has been working in philanthropy managing programs uh, at Erste Foundation for eight years. Uh, She focused on community development, social entrepreneurship and collaboration with Roma communities in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Her love for the aesthetic and inclusive work philosophy was the connector to the world of crafts and the motivation behind setting up Corizom, uh, an association uh, together with uh, Nadia Zerunian and Andrei Georgescu in 2018. Welcome Alina. Welcome Laura,
2: welcome Jan. I'm very happy to be connected to the podcast and uh, yeah looking forward to new vibes and ideas <laughs> because when you talk about wor- your own work this brings more inspiration so thank you for
1: inviting us thank you for being here and you're not alone you're today with uh, nadia zerunyan who specializes in collaboration with uh, global artisans developing small limited edition series highlighting the immense potential relevance and knowledge of local craft. Her current projects are in countries such as Albania, Austria, Georgia, Romania, Uzbekistan. After years and years as a creative uh, force for big uh, international players, uh, such as uh, Calvin Klein, the Swatch Group, or George Jensen, She now focuses on the immediate interaction with the makers. In many cases, she also allows these makers to have their first international uh, exposures. Um, Nadia advised the Erste Foundation Roma Partnership Program. She was a creative consultant for UNIDO, United Nations Industrial Development Organization, and she's also the co-founder of Corism. Welcome, Nadia.
3: Thank you for having us. Welcome, everybody.
0: You both have an expansive experience working with uh, vulnerable communities all over the world. Uh, just hearing your, your biographies um, and all your professional background. My first question to you is why working specifically with artisans and um, how did you get to work together as well? Yeah, maybe
2: I, I'm, I'm always the one who gives the historical background <laughs> of relationship. Working with artisans for me was a very interesting uh, journey. Um, I started a project um, uh, working with and in Roma communities uh, on the topic of social entrepreneurship and developing uh, social enterprises in Roma communities. And we had a very diverse uh, group of uh, very motivated people in in Central Eastern Europe from uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Romania and Hungary. And we were kind of putting our efforts together in creating income for communities in the region. One of the projects uh, we were supporting uh, was um, uh, a foreign and with an organization called Mešte Shukar Boutique, who was working with uh, Roma artisans in Romania, bringing them together under the brand MBQ, and um, we were giving them grants and supporting them into uh, um, developing their small businesses. So um, that must have been 2013 or something. It was, seems so long ago. Uh, Nadia joined our team as a pro bono expert, and she was the creative person who kind of guided the MBQ team through the branding exercise that we uh, did together. And um, the Business developer for the project was Andrei, Andrei Georgesco, our colleague from Bucharest. And this is how the three of us got together and uh, supported the community to uh, through a process of almost five years, where at the end they had a shop and still have a shop in Bucharest and ended up collaborating with IKEA. So they became uh, uh, suppliers for IKEA. And this was something that we were very excited about and very happy uh, and uh, we and and brought us to the question. Okay, what happened there? What were the processes that allowed this small cottage industry group to become a supplier to a bigger retailer? So I think this was the the basic question that we asked ourselves. And when we've created Corizom, we wanted to look at processes that support artisans working in in the crafts uh, production. So this is how we met. It was an inspiration for me to start. Working in the craft uh, production. Uh, there's a nice story where 2018 I had this big challenge of developing a new idea uh, for the Erste Foundation. And Nadia, um, who, who guided me through all these processes these years, was so supporting. And um, she just asked the question what is it that you really enjoyed and that you really liked during this development process in and with the Roma communities? And I said, working with MBQ was a real inspiration and because they became a a success in a sense. So we said, okay, let's take uh, our learnings from there and try to develop
3: a program.
0: Nadia, you also you you have been uh, you have been having a long cooperation with maker in in your design work, right?
3: Yes, I mean like right when I started out uh, when I was studying in Vienna at the, at the Academy of Applied Arts, and uh, I always looked for artisans who could realize my ideas because I was uh, told from very young age that I have two left hands. So I accepted that, but I became very loud and convinced other people to do my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started to work with metal artisans here in Austria which was a bit of a challenge because uh, whenever artisans saw a woman entering the workshop and metal workshops, they were thinking jewelry. And of course I was never quite content to do small things. So. Uh, it took a while to find somebody who was willing to uh, to show me how things are made and to understand that better. And I was always really fascinated by this process that you materialize an idea. Like you, you have an idea, you put it on paper, and then there's somebody who can make this into an actual uh, object. And I found that really incredible process and to witness that was a beautiful thing. And then I sadly walked away from that, becoming, working in a more industrial environment, where sketches were sent out and miraculously product came back. And I realized that I was really missing this interaction with the people who are making things and coming back to Austria after decade and a half abroad I realized that most of the crafts in Europe and most of the artisans that I had worked with had disappeared so having this opportunity to really actively um, participate in this big dream that you can hold up that process for a few uh, people is, is what kept me going and like uh, with Alina and Andre to challenge this like inevit- inevitability that we seem to accept that uh, crafts have to disappear because they are not contemporary production methods anymore.
1: We talk about the European context. So the craft disappearing in, in Europe, what does that mean economically? What does that mean sociologically for the communities? And what does it mean even philosophically, you know, on these different uh, layers?
3: owning pieces that are crafty yeah, is like a very individual expression of yourself like you find something that was made for you so on the one hand you have a special relationship to that object but the object is unique as you hope you are so i think that's from a consumption point like you find more and more only mass produced objects So you become more uniform and your taste becomes your uniform because you just don't have the opportunity to to go into that niches or it becomes so expensive that it's mostly prohibitive for you as a consumer. And economically for the artisans, I mean like um, losing, so labor costs in Europe are high as we know and um, products become very expensive and the market of your potential customers becomes smaller and smaller. So you eventually cannot afford to pay your rent. You just like need to uh, need to look at other opportunities to generate income. And that really, and and probably sometimes uh, mostly either retire or have a retrain to do something else that maybe is not such a qualified work but it also is like a generational shift because many of these artisans have held their crafts for many generations so if the young children see or the teenage children see that their parents cannot make a living anymore of that what has defined their family for generations they have no interest to learn the craft either. So this is like, we believe like triggering a a huge loss of identity for the artisan families and the artisans communities that we're working with. But then on on an even bigger picture, I think like I always was convinced and I think we are convinced that objects define mankind. To know how to do things and to understand the processes and create objects made us into humans. And so when we look back at all these like um, sunken cultural, um, uh, sunken cultures, we define them through the objects they left behind and that we excavate millennia later, the drawings that we find on walls. So if we lose this, capacity, uh, we will lose part of our identity as mankind. I mean, like, I am really convinced by that. Yeah, I
2: mean, just to emphasize and also add to conversations we we had starting uh, last summer um, on the reaction to the pandemic. So people were trying to figure out how do we come back to the localization? We are so much dependent on this globalized world, getting products from across oceans, uh, uh, just in time delivery, be it also like from medical service to institutions to whatever uh, um, we are consuming, uh, and how important it is to come back to the local support, you know. Where do we get our vegetables? How do we uh, uh, come back to the production uh, channels that are not so long or so far away? So um, what we noticed, what I noticed in in Vienna, for example, was a lot of local producers started to organize and say, okay, we can deliver things um, to the people locally. It's much better for the environment. Uh, you can also support us because it was a matter of how do we now earn money as local producers uh, in a in a context where you couldn't have things delivered, let's say. So this is one aspect of our conversation on localization because we are we are convinced that we need to have local supporters in all our communities who can also help the artisans pass through these say crisis moments. And also be a connector to a bigger, um, a bigger context, let's say. Um, so I think this this idea of how do we manage production and how do we support local um, l- local production or your you know, we say like support your local artisan for example buy your things locally. How can that be defined in the context of the pandemic and what will come afterwards? Because we've seen the majority of our artisans were not able to produce during these times because of a lack of um, mobility, for example, because of lockdowns and and so on and so forth. So how do we tackle these things?
3: I think over the last five, six decades here in Europe, we have uh, forgotten about the value of things. and that goes very much to what you just said also like we have we do not remember that objects have a value and that the process of producing something requires raw materials and and skills to make it into an object we became consumers but mass consumers we we have totally changed like within my lifetime like how something is purchased has totally changed everything is considered as a throwaway object you know like so i don't condemn young people or students buying something that is inexpensive because they can afford to decorate the apartment but when a bookshelf becomes a book throwaway product when there's no value attached to that that we need to be aware has consequences for the people who knew how to build these things that were lasting for generations or that were an investment that you were saving for. And like all these little actions of our habits, how we are spending money and how we understand value of things had had an enormous impact on the society around us. And for a certain period of time, that could be compensated because it was just outsourced somewhere else where labor was cheaper and we we, we have forgotten to understand the value of objects and we have not lear- we don't learn anymore to save for something that we really wish of and we lost the respect for objects around us and that has incredible consequences for the people that have been for centuries producing items for us as, as consumers. And that then leads to this cultural crisis, but it leads not only to a cultural crisis, it, it leads to an economic crisis and it leads to a crisis here on the planet because everything that we have been living now leads to a total collapse of resources of uh, labor management of waste management and that is what we have now is just like a highlight of that situation you know we all live in this real crisis that allows us to have taken a moment and to look off how we were living, I think, and, and maybe this moment is long enough for us to change certain things.
0: After this overview of, of uh, disappearing crafts in Europe and all the problems, um, uh, in the end, why should we care about objects?
1: Why, why is it important to create objects and why should we keep these traditions alive? And when Laura asked this, I also added to it, it's, it's also the same about how we th- think about climate change, how we think about our healthcare system, how we t- think about culture in, in general, and how our politicians currently we see have been not putting any effort into these different very important policies that they should have funded, and they didn't, and they still don't. So I think there's a link maybe between all these three things.
3: Like what I find really interesting that what I personally consider as super essential elements of being, other people, the majority seems to just think it's nice to have. I I see this as like a crucial and essential condition, like to, to have identity to have a cultural identity you need to know who you are to be able to confidently exchange with others you can't live in this permanent crisis mode should it be health should it be climate should it be uh, inequality should it be uh, political instability i mean like we are we are inundated with this external threats I mean, like all the things that we have allowed to happen to us in the last decades is quite extraordinary. And all under, under the promise of security. And <laughs> I also think to emotionalize objects. I mean, like, so one thing is doing it yourself, but like really like looking at the value of things and the chain, that the, that this requires, you know, from raw material to waste management, um, that you can actively participate and choose how the objects around you, what value you want to give them, and what how important they are to you, and then as a consequence, also have a direct impact on the society that you are living in, and what we said earlier, the disappearance of craft. I mean, and we were so focused on Europe, but when we started our project with Corison, we, we Andre was traveling in Moldavia and we were to, together in Uzbekistan. And it's actually not a, a European phenomenon. I mean, like I always said, we always wanted to have this illusion that somewhere else the world is still okay. And, <laughs> we had a really serious wake-up call when we realized that like in uzbekistan uh, where the monthly salary is 200 euros a month uh, people could not survive on being potters and they went to russia to become uh, unskilled laborers in in the building industry and there was not a single artisan in, uh, uh, very few artisans in Moldova that we could identify. They all were, were they all came to to central, uh, central Europe to also work as painters and I mean and and again builders like become unqualified labor. Or in Romania we met all these like really fantastic artisans and they came in the summer months to pick strawberries because that's where they made more money. They went to Spain, were living in some tents and picking strawberries. One needs to really take that in, that information, you know, that picking strawberries uh, makes you more money than, than being a highly skilled artisan.
2: I I wanted to add on that um, thought that the sector has been really underserved by investment, digitalization, access to business and finance, and also access to markets. So if you look at global numbers, you have, I don't know, um, the largest second employer globally after agriculture is the creative manufacturing and handmade sector. So the second after agriculture and you have the majority of women who work in the sector. So we we started our project thinking, okay, what does it take to become a supplier to a retailer when you have a small uh, artisan production business? So we wanted to look at and formalize this process from A to Z. Of course, it's, uh, it's been a challenge because, as Nadia was mentioning, it was very difficult to find communities of artisans. And secondly, it is a very long process to become market-ready. Why is that? Well, it is very complicated because in, if you, maybe, Nadia, you can, you can explain better on that. Um, what I wanted to say is that, that there is a high potential in... Um, Formalizing the sector and and uh, bringing smaller businesses into uh, into a bigger market context.
3: We have a few assumptions. So to to really get traditional artisans to be able to become suppliers on maybe a more and, and to generate a more systematic income we need them to be familiar with standard processes you know should it be quality control should it be prototyping should it be responding to uh, external demand you know sometimes that doesn't that hasn't happened anymore i mean like what has happened to lots of like small crafts producers is that totally derailed into the tourism sector so they're doing one of a kind pieces that are rather inexpensive and, and rather meaningless. I would say it's just like a, the object is the carrier of a memory, but the object doesn't really have any, any commercial or qualitative value beyond that. I mean, it's an important uh, thing to be a carrier of memory, but uh, it's also a one time sale. So there's no accountability. In this process. So it's a forgotten product, let's say. So to take them out of that, you need to familiarize them with certain processes. And you also need to familiarize the artisan with a certain language that is required that uh, the retail, you know, is like almost bridging a bridging a communication gap. So that's the one part of it. And the second part is the formalization of entities. So in many of the countries, like many, many of the small scale uh, crafts producers are informal, are working in the informal sector. As I always say, like the money is under the mattress or somewhere, <laughs> there's no bank account, taxes are not paid, uh, raw material is purchased informally. And that happens because the system doesn't provide them Uh, with any benefits you know so you really need to understand and, and COVID I think is an interesting example for example here you know like you get you're you're quite supported but you need to be a taxpayer to do that you know so it really made apparent the necessity to be part of a bigger system that. Takes care, but of course, this argument is only working in highly functioning uh, societies, I, I would say. And, and then the third element that we are using with the artisans is visibility. So we talk about them as community and them as makers and the, the tradition they are working in, and we are highlighting that and talking about them. So, It is a challenge because you need to find all these three, all these three things need to happen in parallel. And uh, from my experience working for big, big companies, like real change only takes time and takes like repeat effort to go through a process. So it's always three years. And I always laugh with Alina and Andre because also defining how Corisome is doing will in the end take us three years. I mean, it it just takes some time until you get to the point where you really have have figured it out. And so being not able to travel to the communities and not being able to really implement what what we are planning to do is a challenge and will cause a delay. But uh, the structures, we are structurally, we are ready. We're just waiting for a green light from some some authority somewhere, right, Alina? Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Maybe to kind of give an an example of how we work to kind of visualize the processes, as Nadia was also mentioning, we have a long-term approach. So we have teams of people who work with the artisans. We have um, a creative and a business developer who are accompanying the artisans through these steps of of production so you can imagine it's a very intense a very kind of um, step-by-step process and um, a very big aspect of that is uh, having the trust of the community of the artisans to to go through the process together and I what I see one of the challenges is that um, at some point you need to Um, present your collection and the artisan needs to have that motivation that his or her products are going to be on the market. And I think what this current situation did was kind of delaying that type of presentation. Also, most of the fairs went digital and most of the events had been cancelled. So I see um, a kind of um, balancing act on being sure that the community is involved and and has the ownership of the process and can uh, as, as uh, soon as possible start generating income because it is also about allowing and, and helping supporting the artisan become more sustainable in its own business development we collaborate and we work with the artisans we do a customized kind of um, expertise placement to be sure that um, that they manage to have the access to a, a bigger market. It doesn't have to be, it could can also be their local market, let's say, but for them to have a development towards something uh, that brings more
0: income. Did it work so far, what you have been working on, or are you in the process to develop this process, or did you already started to... Um to see some some results of what you are doing? (laughs) Stories from the field. Stories from the field. So
2: um, you can imagine that our artisans, the majority do not speak English. So it is also adds another layer of complexity for implementation. And um, we were extremely happy to, um, to get in contact with a woman coppersmith in Sarajevo who, uh, took over her father's um, atelier and is working um, in copper uh, and she speaks English. So we were um, kind of, <laughs> we were happy because, for example, also during the, the um, pandemic, communication was very, very important. So as closer you can be to the artist, the better. So our designer duo, Misha Traxler, um, engaged with uh, Nermina, and um, it was possible for them to continue implementing some of the steps because they could communicate they could have skype calls they could um, uh, keep close and also i think what is important be be there so in this process where nothing really happens anymore and there are no collections coming up being there and still trying and doing the steps of the implementation was something that was very important we had initially thought we would be working with her to be production ready, but it was clear during the process that she has been already doing big steps forward. And I'm I'm very happy for for our Boston project because I think it's one of the most developed in the context of the pandemic, if one could say. Most probably, my colleagues would go like, "Yeah, thank you for putting us a giving us as a pandemic example." But <laughs> I think. No, i mean seriously if you have a dynamic team and um uh, i'm very thankful for our um our teams of designers and and uh, business developers who did lots of efforts in in pushing this forward so um yeah
3: so the other example is uh, is uh, is in an internally displaced displaced people camp uh, south of Tiflis, where we are working with a group of uh, a group from South Ossetia, and uh, we we decided that uh, we wanted to help him with a wood turning machine. Well, we have been waiting for seven months to get the right electricity. The machine has been there since June last year, and we still have not managed to get the electricity um, connected because of COVID. I mean, like it's it's it, you. One gets desperate, you know. We have like weekly phone calls, monthly phone calls in the beginning because we in the beginning, we understood, you know, that, that that it's not happening. But now it's like, tomorrow, 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 and it still doesn't happen. I mean, it's really tragic or the, the workshop in Albania that was closed down by the police during COVID period, because they were not allowed to work together. But this is the sole income generated a generator for a whole village. There is like 11 women who are in a very small village, 11 women working in the workshop that were not allowed to work anymore that these are countries without any social security net. As in the past as I mentioned before that they are working mainly for tourism and the tourist tourism has collapsed so the client place has broken away. So it's a super precarious situation that on the one hand is is really threatening for them but on the other hand they also understand the benefit of somebody like us trying to open up other income opportunities and 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 more long-term sustainable structures that we are suggesting because that's also a challenge for the artisans who who have lived so so long in such an informal way and it has somehow worked, you know, to suddenly find themselves in this crisis moment and some proposal that we are making that is maybe more expensive or more complicated to operate makes them understand the benefit also in moments like that better. And I also wanted to say something about our theory of the three pillars to like going back on the previous conversation, the three pi- the three pillars of development that we see for the communities was an, is an assumption. And what we are now trying to do is this proof of concept. So we have really looked for super diverse communities. So we have a woman volunteer cooperative. We have a small workshop that is that is owned by a woman where she employs, employs 11 other women, we have a group of internally displaced people that is also like a school where the young kids are trained to, to be more familiar with the cultural heritage. We have a female coppersmith in Bosnia that's just like a one woman enterprise with quite a few subcontractors, so we were really looking for very diverse uh, setups to see if our assumption works across a broad uh, section of A countries, but also structures and crafts. We really wanted different groups, different countries, different skills. To see what are the minimum common de- denominators that you need to make this process work. So and we
2: work now for we work with wood, with copper, textile, um, uh, weaving carpets, um, pottery, uh, just as a kind of an illustration.
3: <laughs> we need to stop seeing things so isolated. I think. Yeah. I believed, you know, like it's all interconnected. And I think we as consumers have the power to influence that. And we need to understand that with every single decision. And I'm often accused to be idealistic and naive and I might be both of these things, but I always give this example, you know, like if you have a choice to buy a free range egg or not, with all the information we have of a not free-range egg, the decision is hard to buy a battery chicken egg, right? And the same thing needs to apply to craft. But uh, it, we need to learn to become a stronger voice. And it's not about preservation. Because I think if you talk about preservation, you put it into this memory lane uh, compartment. Mm-hmm. A very relevant question for now and are we going to be the generation who is losing our craft skill and we yeah. will, will we be remembered for the billy
1: but it's interesting the example you gave about the free range egg is interesting because then it doesn't give the same power to every one of us to be able to make that choice because imagine someone who does Someone who doesn't have enough income to make that choice. It's the same with the crafts, right? How do we make sure? So we need to create a system where it's possible, or actually we need to create a system where there is no more choice to be made, that we only eat free range egg, and that we don't make it. Uh, <laughs> that would be the ideal scenario because I, to be fair, I don't think everyone, when they're in the supermarket, some people need to make the, they don't really have a choice. They will buy what's cheaper because their income will not allow them. So that's also another issue, of course, another layer. So is there a risk, you think, when we talk about crafts that we put it in some very privileged place, like only people with a certain level of income will be able to safeguard the crafts? Isn't that also a dangerous discourse, you think?
3: I mean, um, theoretically, yes, but I personally don't believe that and i also don't believe it with food because it's just like how do we consume you know Mm -hmm. like in the past you had maybe i mean again i'm talking about my parents generation they didn't need every if we stay with food you don't need to have meat every day you don't need to have chicken you know like we, we we live. We were raised with this idea that more is better. I think meaningful is better and meaningful can also be less, do you know? Like, and so I don't buy into that um, luxury craft is a luxury or a free, a, a free ranged egg is a luxury. I don't believe that personally. It's just about the quantity that you decide you need to uh, absorb, you know? And like, how many bowls do you need? How many bookshelves does one need in a lifetime? And if you, I mean, like, and I, I mean, like, I go on about the, I moved a lot of times in my life and I'm guilty as anyone. But I tell you, I've owned so many Billy bookshelves You know, and wherever I went, I went to Ikea, I bought a Billy bookshelf. But if I maybe would have bought a proper bookshelf at the beginning of my life and I saved up for the bookshelf, I would have moved it around with me throughout my life. And I think. That's what's changed, you know, that we just, that we believe we need more and we need it always and we need it immediately, the concept of saving up for something and trying to make an investment. That maybe, I am like when I look around my house, what are the objects that I cherish that, that are objects that have been associated with stories that have a meaning. Where probably met the person who made it, or somebody has given it to me, or inherited from my family. These are objects that are meaningful, and in the end, probably these few objects would be enough to have a perfect life. And so, I don't think it's about income, it's about what we believe, how we need to consume. There's a shop in Vienna, every time I walk past it, it drives me crazy. It says, uh, kauf dich glücklich, shop for happiness. Yeah, I mean, I like guess the perverse, the more yeah. perverse. Yeah. Nadia,
0: for example, uh, listening you talking, um, isn't it about education as well? We are not taught anymore to value things, to, to, to value things ar- uh, around us. I mean like we all have such a
3: thirst for knowledge and for I don't know and then when it's inconvenient we just block it out and that's a responsibility that I put back onto the individual you know like I I need to understand what the consequences of my action are and and I don't want it, to, but it's also so uplifting because you have the opportunity. I mean, like as Alina said, uh, you have the opportunity to support your local farmer. You have the opportunity to, and it's not only it's a it's an empowerment tool. I I see this really strongly, but it's also a self determination tool. Like how do I want to live? Do I and and when I look at my children's generation, and I hope they are not uh, exemption, but like how fairness has become such a powerful word, word in their language, and there's nothing that can be fair in a 2 old euro T-shirt, right?
2: I think and the idea is, as you're saying, Nadia, you, we as consumers need to be aware of the power we have, and also reflect on
1: the relationship with an object and how much meaning we give it well i like i like that you say indeed there's nothing fair in a two euro t-shirt but there's also nothing fair in a system that forces people to buy that two euro t-shirt because they don't have any other choice than buying that two euro t-shirt so i think that these two layers are so important like you say there are us who make the choices but there's a systemic level because I, I'm always wary of saying people have a choice. Because I, I do believe not everybody has the same choice because of their situation. And economics play a huge role in that, of course. And as you, we have seen with COVID, huge inequalities. We, we know this. Mm-hmm. So how, what do you think? And maybe that would be a good way to end this episode to really focus on this part. What do you think? We can learn from the whole process of craftsmanship to build these better systems. To not anymore have a two euro T-shirt, but also not have people to have to buy that it's two euro
3: T-shirt or produce. But, for or, yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, so, I mean, like we. I always say I'm like a leftover hippie and a big dreamer, but I also recognize that. Uh, what we can do, we only can do on a small scale. And that's what we really try to do. We try to uh, support artisans in regaining their earning power with the traditional skills that they have and therefore give them opportunity to make their own choices, because I have been so poor in my life and really long, you know, like I, I, I was a single mom and I was struggling and all of that, you know, but I, what I've learned through that period is that economic independence, independency is the thing that allows you choices not somebody else is deciding for you and i think that's hopefully what we will achieve with our little idealistic project our contribution is that we will have we will not hate because i hate this word but we will support people have their economic independence and be able to make their own choices
2: and i also think that if if we manage to to communicate the stories of the artisans, to communicate the challenges that people have currently for, for, let's say, yes, in the COVID context, but also on, on the real market access uh, uh, context, I think we, we are able to give visibility to the artisans in the region. And I think as a consumer, the more stories you see and the more you understand how product is being created, you get to come to this point where you do fall in love with the objects again. So it's a lot about bringing into the light the makers, also enjoying
1: these objects, if you wish, say, from an egoistic point of view, right? Well, for sure, you you do make us uh, fall in love, definitely, with objects. Well, we were already in love, Laura, and I, with objects, but yes. we really, really hope that our our listeners would have uh, had some idea about how the whole this whole craftsmanship uh industry works you know how it affects the different communities how it is related to all the different things we talked about such as climate change uh, the economy or soci- sociological changes happening it's all linked and this is what i think uh, makes this even more important than ever so thank you very much for sharing these stories of empowerment and i hope uh, we're gonna all be economically independent so we can all make better choices for our planet and for our
0: society. Thank you as well for your fantastic work. I know it's not easy, but um, I uh, have always admiration for um, everyone who tries to contribute um, in any way they can to make things a little bit better because we know we (laughs) we need everyone to contribute it doesn't even have to be on a big scale, but uh, locally in, in our own environment, it has been uh, wonderful to to have you with us, uh, both of you. Thank you for giving us such a uh, so many insights into this industry, and I hope uh, our listeners will appreciate too. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Keep close; <laughs> big things are coming up. <laughs>
1: Yes, and good luck with all the rest of your projects. I hope electricity will soon come, you know, in Georgia, so you can that machine can work finally.
0: Oh my God, yeah. In any way, we will, we will, uh, we will follow your your work. Definitely, that's for sure.
1: We will, and we will put everything in our on the show notes, the links to your website, and all the information you have online. We will put it there, so our listeners can access it. Thank you for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to know you're out there. And you can connect with us, Laura. How can our listeners connect with us?
0: We are present on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, at NLE Podcast. You can also send us a message at our uh, email address, nlepodcast at gmail.com.
1: And remember, we can never be loud enough about issues
0: we care about.